This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. to Primal Screen, a show and podcast all about screen culture from movies on the big screen to whatever you're streaming. We're broadcasting tonight from the Triple R Studios on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation. This is and always will be Aboriginal land. I'm your host, Flick Ford, and I'm joined tonight by Will Cox. G'day. Hey, Will. How are you doing? I'm good. Good. Uh, and making her Primal Screen debut, it's Dr. Lexi Canis. Welcome, Lexi. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Now, Lexi, you're a lecturer in media and cinema studies at RMIT and one of the organisers of the Best Films You've Never Seen screening series. Um, Tell us a bit about the inspiration for this screening series. Thanks, Flick. Yes, uh, this series is uh, basically based on the BFI Sight and Sound uh, Greatest Films of All Time list that came out um, last year, late last year, a friend of mine said, I wonder how many people have actually seen Chantal Ackerman's uh, Jean Dillman. And I said, well, let's do something about it and let's let's screen it. It's not a film that you can sit down in, on your couch and just watch. I mean, you, I'm sure you can. You, you can. But it's punishing. <laughs> I mean, do you think? Uh, in the cinema it was a joy, I thought. but And you had the wonderful Cerise Howard. Friend yep. of the show, introing uh, it, yep. introing it. yeah, amazing intro. yeah. And Cerise has actually talked on the show a few times about this screening series. I love it as a concept for the talking, you know, a talking point about the poll because this poll just it, it it ruffled a lot of feathers. I think the right feathers um, there needs to be change like this. And I was so delighted to see different names on the list. Um, and it's a fantastic screening series. What have you got planned for next week? So next week we are screening uh, David Lynch's Mulholland Drive from 2001, a film I'm sure lots of people have have seen before, but maybe it's time to see again. Nice nice winter watch, I think. <laughs> but um, we're screening it with Maya Darren's Meshes of the Afternoon, which is such an incredible experimental film and I think one that's so intertwined with, with Lynch's film that I mm. think it'll be extraordinary to watch them together. So, yeah, really excited about that. Yeah, and like Will said, it's so fantastic watching that in the cinema as well, like essential um, viewing, I think, for both of those. And actually quite hard to get a hold of Meshes in the Afternoon, is that? I've certainly never seen it at yeah. the cinema before. So, yeah, yeah, I think it'd be great. I think it might be on Mubi. Oh, okay. Well, don't go to movie. I haven't checked that. Sorry. <laughs> Come to the capital. Come, Come to, to the, the capital. Because tickets are only $10 <laughs> and it's Tuesday the 18th of July from 6.30. Um, and for full details and to snap up a ticket, you can head to rmit.edu.au. Um, but on tonight's uh, show, we have, uh, well, we've got a lot planned for you, uh, but... 
I suppose I was trying to play the, play the Mission Impossible theme song and it's it's not worked, but it's Mission Impossible. <laughs> that was smooth radio. Yeah, we just do it. You know how it sounds. So, yes, later tonight we're going to review the seventh Mission Impossible film, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. It's actually so hard to believe that an almost three-hour film is only part one of the story, um, but you better believe it and, and maybe bring some snacks with you. Uh, and we'll also take a trip down memory lane and look back on the film that started it all, Brian De Palma's 1996 classic, and we'll share some of our favourite De Palma films, which are either currently streaming or coming to a theatre near you. Um, so for... Uh, before we get into that, though, uh, Sophie Linenbaum's The Ordinaries is an indie film that's been getting a lot of buzz lately. Reviewer and scholar Nadine, uh, Nadine Whitney has described it as marvellous and inventive cinema. I had the pleasure of speaking with Sophie Linenbaum the other week about her film and the potential for cinema to agitate and challenge systems of power. Um, and just a note, uh, you might hear some background noises. Uh, that is the sound of my six-month-old, uh, not distortion. Uh, I hope you enjoy the discussion. In Sophie Linenbaum's The Ordinaries, life really is just like the movies. There are main characters, supporting actors, even miscasts and outtakes. For Paula, a young woman on the cusp of graduating into a main character, it feels like destiny to be stepping into the limelight like her late father. But when things start to jump, glitch and stutter, it seems there's a lot more going on behind the scenes. And I'm now joined by the director and co-screenwriter of The Ordinaries, Sophie Lindenbaum. Sophie, welcome to Primal Screen. Hi, so nice to meet you. Firstly, what a fabulously unique setup. Using film itself as the world of these characters. I know that you've been working in the film industry as a director, screenwriter and a producer. Uh, when did it first occur to you to turn the camera around and use film sets as the world for this comedy sci-fi? I, I made a short movie like um, like seven years ago about a guy who's so lonely that he falls out of the frame and tries to get back into it. And he meets a self-help support group. And they are all miscasts, outtakes, all those things. And um, so they, yeah, stick together and find out what, what like seeing each other really means. And that was the first time I thought about it. And I, I stuck to it because I felt like I had a wonderful experience with this film. Because um, a lot of people were afraid that no, nobody normal, I would say, would understand it. But I had, yeah, amazing screenings and people coming to me and talking to me about how they feel not in the screen sometimes and not being seen. Uh, and so, yeah, I wanted to, to use this world again because I love to play um, and I love to create a play field where I want to talk about social topics that are important to me. I understand that before film school you were working as a playwright and you did a diploma in psychology. I'm wondering how much does that grounding in psychology inform either your approach to writing or directing? I would say it's it's more like it's the same interest that, that made me study psychology or uh, yeah, doing film now. I'm, I'm interested in how society works, how it's all put together and um, affects itself. Yeah, and I think that's what, yeah, s systemic thoughts. I mean, that's it. In the ordinaries, the miscasts and the outtakes are relegated to the margins and everything in this world centers around main characters. The film 
evokes in this way a class structure that is very much like our own world. What were some of the creative decisions that you made when deciding how to present this story? Yeah, it's what you said. It's, it's um, we, we try to portray our world in a filmic metaverse and wanted to talk about how society works. And it's, I, I mean, one of the most important things I wanted to talk about was that not all those isms like racism and uh, sexism and stuff like this, they don't just occur as, as an accident. They are meant to be there to like stabilize the class system that we have. And this is like, this has been like this for centuries. And, and I also wanted to talk about if we can think about to change it, or I wanted to address that it's possible to think about to change it because if we don't, yeah, if we don't imagine it, we, we will never achieve it. I love that line about imagining it because that's often used for screen representation. If you can't see it on screen, how do you possibly bring that into action? It was strange in some ways watching your film because even though this is an imaginary world that you've created, we, the audience, are already familiar with all the different components, you know, what it means to be an outtake or a miscast or incorrectly subtitled. So there's this lovely familiarity with the language that's used in this world, inside jokes that as cinephiles we can enjoy. And I should stress it's a very funny film with lots of winks to the camera in relation to film history. What was it like to make a film that is so meta in relation to filmmaking? It was a challenge and a lot of fun at the same time. So we, we always said we wanted to make like a family film, but instead as for kids and adults, we wanted to make it for cinephiles and nerds and normal people. Um, yeah, normal people. So so we, we tried on the, our way. We, we tested it a lot of times. We gave it treat to people that are not in the film industry and stuff like this because what we didn't want to do was something that centers around itself and it's like only this film about film but we wanted to talk about something else that goes beyond that so and and beside that was a lot of fun of course <laughs> because all the other lovely departments could bring their ideas and we could think about okay what are the images that are in our head and uh, so we came up to this golden age hollywood stuff that that's like the main the main character world and thought about this so yeah it was a lot of fun <laughs> That definitely translates to the audience and I did really enjoy watching this film and I, I did love all of those little winks to camera, especially with how musicals are kind of used as a bit of a character trait, maybe an obnoxious character trait. And I was thinking about how main character syndrome has been used a lot more. I don't know if you've heard of that in social media. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> and how we often do see ourselves, how we present ourselves and we are kind of the main character in all of our life yeah um i would say sadly <laughs> um because it's it's like it's it's been like this for a long time and it's still like this so the question of course is what what doesn't does it mean to be a main character does it mean to be seen or does it mean to be able to speak up or to 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 shine is it important to be like huge or is it just worth listening to or worth to be seen so that's but what, what we also want to discuss with it. But it's nice that you mentioned the musical scenes because they were like the most joyful part of the screen because I always wanted to do something like this. And we had a great choreographer, we had a great composer and um, yeah, and, and the actors were like loving it too. And, and actually in Germany, a lot of people are afraid of these scenes. They Before we released the film, it was like, don't talk about it. Don't say that it's in there. Germans don't like musicals. <laughs> I was like, but it's not about a musical. It's, it's like a meta musical. <laughs> 
That's such a great way of phrasing it. I, I personally do love musicals, but I can understand the hesitation. So when Paula's searching for information about her late father, who is a main character who fell in love with her supporting character mother, she's presented with this different version of history from the characters that she meets out of frame. This revision to history made me think about the way that film can be used to rewrite marginalised histories or uncover stories and worlds that haven't been given a voice. And I wondered what are some of the practical things that you think we can do to make the film industry maybe more accessible to these marginalised voices and stories. I love that you say that because I, I love actually the, the utopia in it when you say it because that's what I hope as well. And I think we we are already doing it. I mean, we do it in the bad way, like we are reproducing stories and um, and stuff. And that's actually the thing why I wanted to start it because I felt like we are leaving this field to either unconsciousness or to, um, to people that want to shape it in, in the right-wing direction. Um, so I'd say just doing it and integrating marginalized people in front of and especially also behind the camera to to shape the stories and the narratives that would be the way to go you know throughout the history of cinema it has been interchangeably used as a tool for propaganda as a vehicle sometimes for national pride and identity but also as a mean by which to agitate and to, to challenge power structures. What advice would you give to filmmakers who are wanting to push against convention and have these bigger discussions to do with class, race, sexuality? Actually, I wonder a lot of times if... Because the way you ask it now is like contrary to how I, I um, experience it most of the time. Because I feel like try to make your movie accessible or, or say it's not a shame for a movie to be accessible to a broader audience. I think that's something something very important we should think about. Because if you look at the at the art house cinema, at the cinema that, that makes you feel like a an interesting good person if you watch it, it's interesting how they treat I mean, accessibility, but also how they um, portray utopian ut utopian thoughts or don't portray them, because that's like something... Yeah, I, 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 I thought a lot about the, the fear of Arthas, um of happy endings, because I feel like that's what we need at the moment, stories that teach us that it's possible to do something and not that it's like the world is difficult. Yes, we know that, and it's going to be preached by the news every day. Uh, so let's dare to tell different stories, I would say. So, yeah. That's such a beautiful point to make. I think we so often get caught in this really strict dichotomy of art house is the space in which you can make all of these political films and mainstream cinema can't possibly at um, attend to that. But you're right, there can be a way in which you can bring in a lot of those formal conventions and, and have a joy as well in cinema. I, the Ordinaries is a real joy to watch. Like I said, so much humour in it as well. What's next in the pipeline for you? Um, it's it's not so easy to say <laughs> because I feel like the, the times to make movies are, I mean, they always been not the easiest times and it's it's at the moment there are a lot of questions about what, what will cinema be in the future and also how will like series production, series production work. So um, if I, if I separate it from those thoughts, I, I say I would love to go forward to make films that think about stuff 
in society. I mean, everybody does. So that's a very stupid thing to say, but that's what I'm, yeah, what I like to think about stories that touch me, but also talk about something political that's in my head or around me. Well, I feel like you have a very unique approach to storytelling. I really enjoyed The Ordinaries and it's currently screening here in Australia at Select Cinemas. Sophie, it has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. It's an absolutely pleasure to speak with you. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. Well, it is one of the most anticipated releases of the year. Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning Part 1, the seventh film in the franchise. Uh, it was released on Saturday and it's getting a lot of attention for the wild stunts of its star and producer, Tommy Cruise. Now, it's been three decades since Ethan Hunt, Cruise, became part of the IMF, the Impossible Mission Force, a covert organisation whose members live and die in the shadows for those we hold close and those we never meet. Uh, and in this seventh outing, Ethan must find the other half of a powerful cruciform key and to stop it falling into the wrong hands. Now, I thought the plot sounded eerily familiar to last week's review, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, uh, and it also features a chaotic car scene through some very tight streets, but it is a lot less jokey than Indy, and it also opens with a submarine explosion, which is um, topical. Uh <laughs> Will, what did you make of this? Um, I I had a lot of fun. The topical the topical <laughs> is right the way through it, and it doesn't always capitalise on that. Um, yeah, look, it's 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 fun. It's not trying to like I think last week I said it's, it's Indiana Jones. There's nothing new here. There's nothing <laughs> new here, and that's absolutely fine. Mm. Um, but um, you know, too much plot maybe. Do, do too you much think? plot. I, I thought maybe too many love interests, but that was just maybe are they, me. Are they love interests? So we think <laughs> well, he's a romantic lead? Well, actually, that's a. I suppose we've opened a bit of a can of worms. I don't think they are, especially. I actually feel as though um, Grace, uh, and I think this was mentioned in another review. I feel like it's someone else mentioned this already, but it's, it's not quite a. It doesn't have that sexual charge, does it? It's kind of something else. It feels almost like a father daughter relationship of Grace and and um, Ethan. That was my feeling. But uh, I've forgotten the other. Isla is uh, from... I, Isla. She was in a couple of the other ones yeah. as well. So there's something there. But no, it's not strictly... It's not strictly a, a love interest, I suppose. There's and just it, something there. There's a bit of a... I liked that that didn't take over. You know, yeah. In so many other films, yeah. you, um, you know, the romantic subplot just kind of is popping up every so often to yeah I really liked that it didn't take over and there were so many women in the film actually yeah there are actually yeah. and and quite interesting roles I know that um oh Hayley oh what's her grace's actor's name <laughs> sorry I haven't got my notes in front Hayley of me Atwell. Hayley Atwell Hayley Atwell so I know that she was actually involved directly with some of the scripting of her character and the character development I do, I do feel as though there was a lot of thought put into character motivations particularly yeah the two female characters that we've already mentioned Isla and Grace um so they're not just thrown in I shouldn't I don't think it's as empty as sort of you know um do you think that empty inclusion do you think that that when they were writing this film, they they were looking, they were copying the, the person next to them who was writing the Indiana Jones film because Hayley Atwell's <laughs> character and Phoebe Waller-Bridge's character are alarmingly similar they at some are point. Quite similar. They are similar. Maybe because it's so fresh in my mind, but it did feel a very similar it's team, film. Team our ageing hero up with a, a young, <laughs> dashing British thief. <laughs> 
Um, it's a kind of it's a curious one. I feel like the at the core of MI seven seems to be a bit of almost like a a fear of technology, and it's a really fascinating enemy um, to have um, up against Ethan Hunt. Uh, it yeah. doesn't entirely make internal sense what happens a lot of it, but that's fine, right? That's obviously fine. <laughs> but there is a theme of returning to analog which mm. I, I could have been played more, but I did really enjoy like the, the government using old CRT TVs and mm. satellites and stuff like that. But um, basically because there is, a, there is a rogue AI thing out in the internet that is, that is taken on a mind of its own. Um, but then there's, there's some wasted opportunities. Like I thought there's one scene where Simon Pegg's character switches his car to self-driving mode. Yeah. And I thought, oh, okay, great. Well, that's setting up a cool action scene with the car going haywire. No, I thought the fine. same. Even the reputation think... that self-driving cars have, they just yeah. they just slept on that one. I, I wondered whether that maybe that was just a something that got edited out. Maybe. Um, because it seems like it's setting it up or it's just a it's a you know, red herring. I don't know. Maybe it's just like you expect it to go that way. Um, you know, Tom Cruise is just such a fascinating screen icon. He's easily one of my favourite actors. Um, I, I did confess uh, in the socials that he is like, I, I don't know what it is about him as a as a presence, but he just, from, from when he first came onto the screen until now, he's been able to maintain this amazing... Um, I suppose just reliability on screen. He's so bankable as a star, and it's he—he he really does, I think, still deliver. Um, we mentioned uh, we're drawing a lot of comparisons with indie, but we talked a lot last week about seeing Harrison Ford as an old man yeah. and something about a real uh, celebration of getting older and um, some of the weariness that comes with it, but also just like the the lived life experience that he kind of brings to that role, especially as an action hero. And mm-hmm. Tom Cruise, you know, famous for doing his own stunts. This is so different to Indy in terms of EG- – in Indy we did see a lot of CGI and that took away from some of the pleasure. Mm-hmm. Here we have some really amazing stunts. It's almost too many stunts. I think the car chase goes for half an hour. That's no, great. Not too many stunts. <laughs> no, I didn't <laughs> think that this- – I thought, like I said, I think there's too much plot. I think this, the bits where the, the stunts stop and everybody sits around and talks about something that I have no idea what they were talking about most of the time because it was nonsense, you know, and then you forget it immediately in the next action scene. <laughs> then cut those. You Just make it pure do. sensation. Yeah, you know? the plot's interesting though. Like I've thought this before about earlier Mission Impossible films. Like the plot is always at some point incomprehensible. Like you lose track of what's actually happening mm. and then you realise it doesn't matter and you keep going because, Mm. you know, because the car's like driving down, you know, the Spanish stairs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But I think Tom Cruise is incredible as a star also because of the the films that he picks. He just Mm. picks winners every single time. And it really feels like everything that he does is his, like – he doesn't just turn up in somebody else's project. I can't think of the last time he was he did that, um, like Tropic Thunder or something like you know fifteen years ago. But most of the time, it's a Tom Cruise film, and he's all in. Well, he's, he's often the producer yeah. as well. And we uh, actually, I don't think we reviewed it on Primal, but I did talk on Breakfasters about um, Top Gun, and just the way in which like he. He goes to so much effort with the casting. Like he sent over all the eligible actors for um, one of the roles that went, ended up going to Miles Teller and he just brought them all to this like private island. You know, it's just wild. Like he, he goes to – he's really – I think one of those things – sorry, I'm not describing it very well, but his intensity on screen it does 
seem to play out in terms of how he approaches the filmmaking um, and all of the story behind it. Um, we are going to talk about where this all began, this whole franchise began with Brian De Palma's 1996 classic. But for now, I suppose, you know, the through line for all of these films is Tom Cruise. Also, Ving Rhames does appear in um, all of the seven MI films. Uh, Lexi, have you actually – I haven't seen all the MI films. Have you? No. No, I haven't seen no. them all. Um, I don't think any of us – you haven't. No, I've seen okay. about three or four of them. Yeah. Mm. Okay. I don't think – for listeners, I don't think you need to have seen all of them. I think that there's so much in the, the kind of public consciousness, the whole like mask ripping off, so many of the iconism of the – 1996 classic mm. has just been parodied so so much Absolutely. that you can follow it. It's yes. been amped up, yeah, to the nth degree here. <laughs> Too much. Um, do you think? Do you think? No, I don't. <laughs> I don't think so. I think it's better um, yeah. that for having been amped up and just being absurd. It is you know, two hours like, and 43 minutes, I think. That's a bit too long. It is. I mean, mostly yeah. that's action, and uh, like I said, they could cut a lot of the talky talky bits. But you know, yeah, it is mostly just action. That's what people want to see. So, but then it was half an hour. The pre-title segment was half an hour long. Mm. It was half an hour. Before I actually we get loved. To the... I loved that. Mm. I thought it was great. I, I really get into those ones where they properly set up the scene um, in that in that opening. Kind of similar to uh, the last Bond film. I thought in that really stunning opening. Yeah. Um, and you just sink straight into the story. I think I've... the storytelling actually is quite good. I know you were saying it's too much plot. Well, I do think the storytelling is quite good in this. It's got a nice pace to it, like for a two, almost three-hour yeah, film. It does. It does. It didn't lag for me. No. Um, no, I thought it was super exciting all the way through. <laughs> I, I feel like the Bond themes have been copying off the Mission Impossible series for quite a while. Do you think? Like Bond and um, so I think Bond has been inspired by this. And I then think so too. I think um, Fast and Furious has been inspired by this. What about Bourne? I think it all came from Bourne. I think Bourne uh, led to the Bond, you know, re, uh, re, uh, uh, reawakening, Daniel Craiging, <laughs> mm. uh, which has then, then led to, to this ultimately. Well, you know, I think Bond is probably copying from a lot of different places. Well, but- the, I think also we should mention that like, they seem to acknowledge the fact that this is, well, dead, dead reckoning part one and part two is coming out soon. This will be the final um, instalment in, in Ethan Hunt. Couldn't uh, keep going. Oh, have they said that? Have yeah. Oh, so Tom Cruise is coming. Yeah. I, I think that has been on record. So I think that that whole – that kind of adds to some of the narrative around um, – I think that's correct. I think it will be, yeah, his final – well, sorry, I should clarify. It will be Tom Cruise's final portrayal as Ethan Hunt. Mm. <laughs> that oh. does leave it a bit open, doesn't so it? Oh. be a handover. Yeah, possibly. Well, so this a isn't younger. a bound in, you know, signed in blood contract. They could easily do another one and mm. nobody would bat an eyelid. Um, maybe in 20 years, maybe do it. You know, Tom Cruise at 80, like, like Indy. <laughs> well, we should mention his age. So he is, I think he's 61 now. I think I, think I have so. that right. But he was about, yeah, 57, 58 when they started filming. Um, he's in great shape. He delivered, I think he's, um, he's got such a fascinating face. I was reading uh, Mark Mode's article in The Guardian. He was talking about how Tom Cruise in his later age has really almost got a similar look to him as Richard Gere. Mm. And as oh, soon yeah. as he pointed out, I was like, that's exactly it. Because he has a, a kind of wonderful weariness to his mm. face yeah. and, I think that really fits. You don't want someone that's still got that elastic kineticism of the 1996 film. Um, I, I love that his character has actually changed a bit and he does seem quite fatherly, I thought, actually, in this film. Yeah, I was pleasantly surprised with that yeah. ageing aspect. I was kind of a bit worried about it because, well, because of Indy. 
um, being a big Harrison Ford fan. Like I found that a bit kind of, I don't know, I find that a bit sad the way that that's dealt with somehow. Or, mm. But anyway, I thought this was kind of really, really pitched very, very well. Like it do, he does have that kind of Richard Gere kind of squinting sort of, you mm. know, um, you know, Times, times have passed, have been through a lot, but he's still super fit and he's still jumping off all the cliffs. And, yeah. you know, and I thought it was great. And he's actually physically doing it as yes, well. He's not, right. I mean, in Indy, they were stuntmen wearing masks that were then CGI'd over. I think mm. every time he probably had to run, you know, because he's 80. He's 80. I oh, think it's 80, fine. Yeah. Look, I wouldn't want to run. But, but, but <laughs> these guys are all old now. I mean, Ving Rhames is 64 or something. Simon Pegg's about 53 and, you know. I don't, you couldn't do it again, I don't think. You couldn't keep going mm. <laughs> along this train or start getting ridiculous. Well, we'll see. <laughs> so are we recommending MI7? I really enjoyed it. I you, thought it was really good. You actually. know exactly what you're getting. Yeah. Yeah, sure. If you yeah. want to see, if that's yeah. the sort of thing you want to see, this is a good example of it. <laughs> I'm so kind of torn. I think I didn't love it as much as I oh, should you and you really got into indie. I think maybe it is a good film. I mean... I had just rewatched MI One, which we're going to talk about in a second. I really love that film. Mm. So did it did it live up to that standard? No, but it's still very enjoyable. And look, for almost three hours, it's you know you're getting a lot out of your ticket price, I suppose. Uh, so Mission Impossible: Dead Reckoning Part One is currently playing at basically every cinema, uh, all the major ones. I did hear an interview um, and, um, well, there's been like so much press about MI7, but uh, the main takeaway was that, you know, Tom Cruise really does care about audience pleasure and like making sure that audiences are entertained. And I think that, you know, MI as a franchise, just, you know, it's like a, it's like a genre that's very easy to, like a, you know, a packet that's very easy to replicate. But the original by Brian De Palma, um, I don't think there was, you know, he wasn't so keen on, on all the sequels. So we did, of course, just review the seventh film in the Mission Impossible film franchise, but the series started back in 1996 with Brian De Palma at the helm. And the director has said of the sequels, one of these is enough. Why would anyone want to make another one uh which is kind of interesting that here we are in 2023 and look there's been a whole heap um and you know to varying popularity um but the fact that there are six other um films means that there is obviously was a little bit of extra juice to be squeezed out of Ethan Hunt and the adventures of the IMF um, and money too, which is the main thing that De Palma is opposed to with with all of these sequels. He describes it as the big problem of Hollywood and, and kind of the corruption of Hollywood is wanting to milk this, this franchise. Um, De Palma is such a fascinating figure, Um, 50-plus-odd years uh, in his career, Um, very much sort of existing in this kind of hard, uh, I don't know, crime, suspense, thriller space. Um, Most people will be familiar with, you know, Carrie from 1976, Dressed to Kill, 1980, Scarface, The Untouchables, of course Mission Impossible in 1996, um, there's also some cult favourites. Blowout, 1981, which we reviewed on the show before. Um, Sisters, 1972. I'm sure I'm missing some. <laughs> Did we say Carly Do's Way? Oh, of course, yes, mm. from 1993. Mm. Um, you know, De Palma's style, I suppose, is really interesting. I rewatched MI1 uh, the other night just before seeing MI7. And I really loved a lot of the camera angles that he, mm. he chose. I think that's actually what makes it such an enjoyable film for me. He's got this beautiful split screen. He's got all of these really, I think, quite cleverly used canted angles. Um, 
it's kind of well known for all of that, that kind of split focus. Uh, there's lots of markers of his style mm. and, he, and quite different films and often quite iconic films. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, the Dutch angles are amazing, um, as well as the um, really kind of obtrusive sort of close-ups, you know, really full-on kind of close-ups, yes. you know. Yes, yeah. Yeah, lots of play with perspective and, yeah, super mm. interesting. Actually, that is used so well in Blowout. And I was talking off-air about when we did review uh, Blowout, um, John Travolta's face is, was just taking up all of a best part of a wall and it, my cat kind of went crazy and was just meowing at John Travolta's face. Never, <laughs> never liked Travolta. No. <laughs> <laughs> Will, what would you say is your favourite De Palma? Do you have a favourite? Um, well, I, he doesn't really go and make the same film again and again, does he? There's, there's, there's so much variety in them. And I like the cultier, weird ones. Um, and I think last week, um, separate to this, I um, watched Body Double, which is something pretty amazing. I think it came up on the, you must remember this, uh, Karina Longworth's podcast. Yeah. And so, in her erotic 80s series which is excellent by the way um and she talked at length about body double and i thought i really have to see this and i yeah i i, I do think it's my favorite De Palma at the moment so it was your first time seeing it it was my first time seeing mm. it last week yeah yeah you've seen it i've seen Obviously, it, you've seen it times, before yeah. Yeah. it's quite a remarkable film yeah you said something remarkable it, it is something remarkable yeah for it, sure. it, like more than just being a movie it's like mm, something remarkable. yeah it's quite mad and it's full of excess it's cartoonally mm. uh excessive um, the scene with the the huge drill, you know, it, like it, this is a drill as a as a weapon. Somebody's trying to murder somebody with a drill, and it's you, you think it's it is um you know hyper violence or something, but it's so over the top that it's it's past violence and into um you know uh, Looney Tunes territory. Yeah, I think. Um, and then the big Frankie goes to Hollywood number in the middle. Yeah, uh, it's about um it's kind of a Hitchco- Hitchcocky. Um, Sort of erotic Sorry. thriller. Laughed at Hitchcocky. Hitchcocky. It's Hitchcocky. That's the actual word that. Hitchco- so it's on the DVD cover. <laughs> um, it, it's Vertigo and Rear Window kind of blend, mm. blended together with um, with Lexi. You were saying um, a bit of a bit of Dario Argento as yeah, well, which is sure. something I had thought like of. Via Via Dario Argento mm. for sure. Yeah, but did you notice? Um, I watched it today actually because I hadn't seen it for a while, and you know I had the day off, so I watched. Body double nice. <laughs> during As the day. Do. But did you notice the mask, the Scooby-Doo mask, which is maybe that's where it, the Mission Impossible masks came from. Like there's a mask that gets kind of pulled off, like a latex skin mask in Body Double. Uh, oh, yeah, of course yeah, there towards is. towards the end, right? And I was like, oh, is. is that where it came from for Mission Impossible? Did it, did, yeah. Were they not in the 60s TV show? Oh, I'm not sure, actually, the... but there's that kind of real Scooby-Doo moment where it gets, like, pulled off the face, mm. you know? It's, like, so exciting. Yeah. And I was like, oh, is this, like... And then that made me wonder how much does Brian De Palma's style have to do with what we think of as the Mission Impossible style? Yes. Because there were some kind of canted angles in Mission Impossible 7, I think. Yeah. And I was like, oh, is that De Palma's kind of legacy? I do think there's actually, I mean, we've already spoken in length about MI7. I do think there is a lot of um, tips of the hat to cinema classics. Um, a lot of the scenes in, in um, Venice in particular 
um, you know, they're, they're kind of they're very conscious decisions. I was thinking actually of Don't Look Now. Don't Look Now. Yeah. <laughs> Running through the, yeah. Totally. And Which also, I loved about that. And, that, and actually a, a reference as well to MI1 where you've got um, a lot of the really similar um, framing and lighting and things yeah. like that, which, yeah, seems like an obvious nod. And the little Fiat going down the stairs <laughs> yes. is, is so Italian job. Yes, of course. Absolutely, yeah. except yeah. then it um, avoids a pram, which is totally a battleship Potemkin. Oh, <laughs> yes. right. So, like, it's just yeah. reference after reference. But yeah. battleship Potemkin uh, comes up as something that De Palma, like, uh, used in Untouchables. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Mm, so... Yeah. There you go. It's all tied in together. Yeah. MI7 direct link back to Absolutely. Battleship Potemkin. I think De Palma would be horrified if we were making um, links between his work and MI7. Also, but, great. Yeah. Sorry, just the, my, one of my favourite things in Mission Impossible 1, apart from the, um, the, the, the suspended from the roof computer vault bit, which is fantastic, and that's silent, mm. you know, no music, which, which they do in other Mission Impossible films. They do it in the fourth one as well. There's, you know, like trying to in an office somewhere being dead silent and it's very, very effective. But the theme, the recurring theme of computers doing things that they don't do in real life, yeah, which is one of my favourites. In this one, Tom Cruise is looking for a supervillain called Max, who's some undercover spy. So he goes on the computer and he writes max.com <laughs> and it doesn't work. <laughs> I absolutely loved that scene. It's so interesting, isn't it, when you see early screen representations of the internet and it being this kind mm. of frustrating, you know, black screen with the green text, mm. um, just putting in really bad prompts. It's like what my parents would Google and you think, no, no, don't yeah. put that in. That'll come up with a million. <laughs> Max.com, <laughs> like this villain might have registered that domain. Yeah. I mean, the internet's still extremely frustrating. It's still a lot more colourful <laughs> now, I guess. Yeah, well, I think, you know, we've De Palma, De Palma, there is a lot of beauty in his, his filmography. Um, he, he, the main criticisms he's had about the M, um, MI series has been actually about the fact that they're shot digitally, which is interesting. Um, and he, he talks a lot about how the visual storytelling has gone out the window. That's a direct quote from him. I thought about the ways in which I do think that is being challenged a bit in MI7, um, but I just think he's got so many films in his filmography that just are beautiful to watch on the big screen. I'm really delighted that Carrie is going to be um, screened at Thornbury Pitch House this Thursday. I think that's right. Yeah, I think that's right, yeah. Yeah, I think... Um you, you might not think about the similarities between a film like Carrie and a film like Mission Impossible, but actually if you think about that incredible scene where he uses the disc and he's going in to take that list, um, that incredible suspended scene, that is almost a not shot for shot, but it's very, very close to the scene in Carrie with the bucket. Like there's the shots of the rope, there's the shots of the, you know, the faces. It's almost the same scene. Mm. And it's all about, I think, those kinds of uh, – textural sort of tactile kind of rope, you know, rubbing against metal mm. and the kind of tension that builds up through that kind of materialist kind of quality, which which would make more sense on film rather than on digital. Yes. Right. right. So yeah. And also the timing. I feel like it sounds like such a pat comment to make, but timing in suspense is so essential and that all comes down to shot duration, uh, the editing of what you're going to put after the other. And they built it so well. And even in Blowout, I, I mean, Blowout doesn't get mentioned as much, but I feel like there's a lot of fantastic suspense in that film. Um, and, yeah, it's so interesting that you point that out about Carrie because that's kind of – there's people always remember the the big, you know, the – 
pig blood going on Carrie mm. and all these shock moments. But it's actually in the build-up, the mm. anticipation of something happening. And I think they do create that a little bit in MI7, which obviously is not helmed by De Palma. Um, I've actually got Christopher McQuarrie, I think. McQuarrie, yeah. yeah. Mm. So different director, but definitely tapping into something of De Palma's style. Yeah, I think so. Well, Carrie is not really a horror film, I don't think. It feels more like a suspense film. It's mostly not... It's not horrifying through most of it. No, do, it's really only that one bit. That? Yeah, <laughs> that yeah, one yeah, bit, yeah. So that's the bit that everybody quotes. You yeah, know, yeah. The, bit, I mean, the it's tipping t- of the blood, but that's, that's right. It's the end. Yeah, that's mm. right. It's not the bulk of the film. It's yeah. not really what it's for. It's a teen movie, mm. right? It's mm. like an incredible teen movie. Um, and I think what you said before, Bill, was right, that he, he does make a lot of different things. He works in so many different genres and he doesn't repeat necessarily. And yet when you watch the film side by side, you can see that they are absolutely made by the same director. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. Well, you need to watch them in succession, I guess, to see. Yeah, that's a good idea. To see the, <laughs> yeah. double as well. <laughs> so what do you reckon? The De Palma season at uh, the Capitol? Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's not a bad yeah, idea. Look at, look at that, yeah. I feel like so many people... People would have seen his films but not coupled them together in that same way. Yes. Like you, you mm. just wouldn't think to do that. No, you wouldn't assume that the person who made Scarface made Carrie. No. And made uh, Mission to Mars. Mm. Yeah. And yeah. Snake Eyes, you know. <laughs> Snake Eyes, yeah. So yeah. what do you think about – so we, we've picked out a few of his gems. I feel like there's a, there's a few not-so-great films in De Palma's uh, filmography – do you think there's been like a winding down? His more recent films have not been commercially as successful. Uh, I didn't know. I think he wrote a book uh, two years ago, maybe three years ago, which is really interesting. I have not read it, but I thought that was an interesting sidestep to his filmography because I, I yeah, it wasn't quite his commercial films. To, um, his films towards the end of his career uh, have been not as well received mm. and have not performed that well. And I thought it was interesting this main issue with the sequels for um, MI have to do with the fact that they're just a money grab and for him it's all about the beauty of cinema. Mm. Yes. I mean, I think he also makes films with um, themes and um, content that is difficult sometimes, Um, you know, around gender stuff and and Mm. violence as well. Like they are, you know, they are challenging films for some people they're very voyeuristic they really lean into that part of the Hitchcock stuff right yes. like surveillance voyeurism all that kind of thing they take it like body much double. more graphically yes. further that's right which Hitchcock would never have been able to do that's right yeah um I wonder if he might have if he'd been able <laughs> if he'd been able maybe know. not probably oh, imagine not imagine if oh, imagine if he was making films 20 years later how much grosser yeah, how they'd strange. be <laughs> how strange well that's right yeah I guess that's my point maybe that you know yeah maybe he's Something's changed, and he and he kind of hasn't, and so you know that's that's true of a lot of older you know a lot of older filmmakers. They mm. get kind of stuck in a previous decade, maybe. But I haven't actually seen a lot of his recent ones. Uh, have have I? Uh, I've I've sort of taken a bit of a sidestep. They haven't been memorable. I've I've watched like a handful, but I, they didn't stick with me in the same way. And maybe it's that thing where you kind of have put them on a bit of a pedestal, so you think, oh, they're going to deliver this, and then yeah. they don't. And it's it's a shame because it doesn't allow for auteurs to have a kind of to experiment as much. They kind of seem to have a bit more to to lose. We're always going to compare them to those other right. films. Mm. But having said that, yeah, I suppose that's always going to be part of the conversation, isn't but it? But I think a lot of these films have had really negative reactions. Like mm. I think Body Double was, you know, laughed at. Mm. Um, There's a real pulpy, pulpy yeah. sort of feel to a lot of De Palma's work, I think. Yeah. And, and that is going to, you know, if you think about pulp fiction, it is to do with like 
having seeing it as like really base, maybe um, voyeuristic or mm. you know salacious sort of material. Yeah, absolutely. I think he's um I think he's more interested in other aspects of the film, so he kind of doesn't really care as much about acting, for instance, and and yeah. story in the same way that other directors might. Um, I think he's actually quite experimental. He's like an a you know like an experimental kind of popular filmmaker. Um, and that means that there are some aspects that he, yeah, some aspects are really pulpy, really mm. kind of, um, yeah, and I think that's also that connection back to the Italian stuff that he really is into from the 70s, right? They've got that kind of same sort of, you know, voyeuristic, pulpy kind of quality about them where they don't really care about certain aspects that, you know, like linear narrative and all those kinds of things. Yeah, they're not obsessed yeah. with those, but they're more interested in the beauty of the of the image um, and the act of watching and all mm. that kind of thing. The yeah. pulpiness of some of these reminds me, gives me a bit of a Paul Verhoeven yes. kind yeah, of vibe. Yes, sure. I think very yeah. similar. Well, contemporary, really. Yeah, I mean, the excess is something like, you know, Total Recall and Robocop and things like that and Body mm. Double fit mm. really well together. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah, it's an easy leap from Body Double to Showgirls. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Do you think? <laughs> yeah, actually. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that men of – that these two men, that they do share a lot of, like, similar content in their work. So, like, what's going on there on a cultural level? I mean, that could be – that's a PhD topic in itself. Mm. Um, but if you do want to have a look at um, – you know, Brian De Palma's Mission Impossible from 1996. It is actually currently streaming on Stan and I was delighted that uh, Body Double is available as well to stream on SBS On Demand, which is, of course, a free service. That is his 1984, what would you say, neo-noir erotic thriller yeah um yeah that covers it and of course De Palma's Carrie is going to be at Thornbury Picture House on this Thursday and I think you can just head to uh thornburypicturehouse.com.au can you get Um, Phantom of the Paradise anywhere I'm not sure you know it's available anywhere I've seen that around recently yeah I did try to get uh, an exhaustive list of all the De Palma films that are currently available it's hard I think at this point just just rent them (laughs) yeah I don't know I don't even know if you can rent it. You might have to go and mm. buy an imported Blu-ray from Play in the city or something like that. But <laughs> go to picture. Free play, I reckon play, if anyone's shop. got it, yeah, go to stuff. go to picture search in Richmond. I think they'll be able to track it down. Oh, must, yeah, it must true. exist somewhere. Mm. Um, but I think well worth returning back to the original mm. um, and and the author who created it before seeing Mi Seven. I don't think you need to. There's, but it, it's just you'll be able to, to follow it. <laughs> MI7 without seeing MI1 yes. through to 6. You'd be yeah. fine. But <laughs> yes. there's some, there's some there's fun There's enough hand-holding. <laughs> um, but, yeah, please check those out. On tonight's show, I spoke with Sophie Linenbaum about her film The Ordinaries, which is currently here in Melbourne, screening exclusively at Cinema Nova. Uh, we then reviewed the latest film in the Mission Impossible franchise, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, which is playing at all major cinemas around the country. And we wrapped up the hour with our thoughts on the first Mission Impossible film and Brian De Palma's work more generally. De Palma's Carrie is playing this Thursday at the Thornry Picture House as part of the Slasher Sirens, a bloody gin and film festival, which is a great title. <laughs> uh, head to thornburypicturehouse.com.au for more info and to buy your tickets. And Body Double is currently streaming for free on SBS On Demand and highly recommend checking that out. Uh, And, oh, the very first Mission Impossible is on Stan. Uh, And while we're talking about things to see and do, make sure you get your tickets to the best films you've never seen, Noir Double Feature. Um, 
that's what are the two features we've got coming? We've got Maya Deren's Meshes of the Afternoon from 1943. That's and, right. And David Lynch's Mulholland Drive from 2001. I love this as a double. I think it's going to be fantastic. It's happening next Tuesday, 18th of July from 6.30. Tickets are only $10, which is a bargain for those two films. Uh, and for full details and to snap up a ticket, you can head to rmit.edu.au. Um, before we wrap up, I want to say a big thank you to Luke Lay, who's been our podcast editor since February last year. Luke is heading overseas soon and so we'll be leaving the team, but it has been an absolute pleasure working with you, Luke, and I hope you have an awesome adventure. Thanks for all your help on the show. Uh, you can, of course, listen back to tonight's episode on the Triple R website or uh, subscribe to the Primal Screen podcast. Uh, Lexi, Will, thanks so much for joining me tonight. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 